WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu. The Metro on 101.9 WDET. I'm Tia Graham. And I'm Nick Austin. Today is Mardi Gras, as you can tell from all the folks out there enjoying their punchkis. Hopefully you are as well for Fat Tuesday or maybe just some jazz from the South. Whatever it takes to get you in that move, it's great. Also, today happens to be the 75th birthday of WDET. That's right. Happy birthday to us. (laughs) Happy birthday to me. Tia, I'm looking at some of the programs we had from back then. Cosmopolitan program in Italian. Cosmopolitan program in Polish. Cosmopolitan program in Yiddish. Mm. They just said it on the 10. They told you exactly what you're going to get. But what are we going to get today on the Metro? Number one, I would love to hear some of those shows return to the airwaves. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on this Yes, we will. But over a month ago, people across the country... And world celebrated New Year's, but January 1st is not the only day people celebrate a fresh start. From January 21st to February 20th, people around the world, Detroit and Metro Detroit, have been celebrating the Lunar New Year. This holiday is celebrated by a variety of Asian Americans with fireworks, red pep paper cuttings, and lanterns. To discuss what's going on with Lunar New Year this week is Peggy Dew and Tao Lo. Lou, excuse me. Peggy is the executive director of the Association of Chinese Americans and Tao is the marketing and development associate for the organization as well. And the organization Association of Chinese Americans is a nonprofit that operates within the Hennen Center in uh, Midtown Cass Corridor area in Detroit. And Peggy and Tao, thank you so much for joining the Metro. Thank you for having us. So Thank just, you for inviting us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So just jumping in, what is Chinese New Year? This is an open question to both uh, Peggy and Tao. How did it begin and what do people do to celebrate? So Luna New yeah, Year, also Chinese... known as... Sorry, Peggy. Go ahead, Tao. Uh, Luna New Year, also known as a Spring Festival, it holds an immense cultural significance for Chinese and the East Asian communities. It marks the beginning of the Luna calendar uh, year, and it's celebrated with great joy and reverence. So as an agricultural civilization, people need to determine what crops to grow for the next year, and this is the time of the year to do so. That's why we celebrate it. Peggy? Yeah, so I think um, um, in addition to the cultural significance, and Lunar New Year um, is steeped in rich traditions and customs that have been passed down for generations. And from the iconic and decorations symbolizing good luck and prosperity um, to the feast shared with families and friends. Each um, like carries a deep meaning and like a very good luck. So that's why, um, you know, um, it's a celebration time for us to get together. And like um, each people um, is very happy uh, to embracing the new year, the fresh start. Yeah. So, you know, Peggy, going to stick with you. What was Chinese New Year uh, like for you growing up personally? And what are some tastes and smells and sights that uh, you remember or bring up fond memories about Chinese New Year for you or Lunar New Year, excuse me, for you? Yeah, so um, at that time, like, we usually, you know, have a break 
<laughs> so um, as a kid, um, I'm really excited to um, enjoy um, the family renew- reunion, the meals, and then uh, we watch TV together and um, families um, get together uh, and my parents uh, will give me some uh, red envelopes for good luck and um, some of the areas um, we are allowed will do the firecrackers. So um, in my memory, just it's a one day or like a one month filled with joy and blessings. Tao? Yes. So what was it like for you growing up at, for Lunar New Year and just some of the things that you were accustomed to and remembering at the time and, and some of the things that you would like to continue to spread uh, 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 as you uh, grow and age? Um, so family reunion is a, is a great tradition. Um, and then we always get together to prepare a large, large feast. <laughs> Um, and also wearing new clothes that because it represented the, the renewal and the fresh beginnings. Yeah. So, you know, this year is the year of the dragon. Um, Peggy, starting with you again, what does that mean, the year of the dragon? And what is the significance of that? Yeah, I think a dragon is kind of um, special. <laughs> and um, the dragon may be considered to be a symbol of um, power, um, strength and good fortune in the Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. Tom, what do you think? Uh, I think a dragon is the only mythical creature in the Chinese uh, zodiac signs. So therefore, dragon has a lot of a power. It, uh, we believe dragons host the power of a changing uh, one's fortune and their luck. Mm-hmm. So we, is it safe to say that this year, the year of the dragon is a year of luck and a year of power for those who are willing to embrace it? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, uh, Tao, going to start with you. What kinds of traditions or rituals are happening here in Detroit, in Metro Detroit, for the Lunar New Year? So, nowadays, many of us here in the United States don't have the luxury to travel back to our birthplace to celebrate with our families and the relatives. So, that's why ACA hosts uh, a Lunar New Year celebration banquet every year for those of us here to celebrate with a larger community and honor this tradition. This year's banquet will be held on February 24th at a restaurant in Troy, Royal Palace. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, and just continuing on with the traditions and some of the things that are happening in Metro Detroit and Detroit for Lunar U- New Year. Um, um, same question goes to you, Peggy, as well. We're going to stick with you, Tao, for a little moment. What are some of the favorite dishes or some of the favorite things that you all are preparing or some of the, the clothes even that you just were talking about that you all are uh, going to be wearing? What are some of the, the, those traditional things that we're going to see during Lunar New Year? Yeah, I think I'm um, the as for the color, like you will see a lot of red. Mm-hmm. You'll see the um, red uh, lanterns, um, red envelope, and some decorations. Um, I think that's also like related to one of the you know um, the old stories that we also eat on the rice cake. Uh, meaning like uh, we have on the good luck and like uh, to be climbing to a higher levels uh, in the next year. All right, Tao. You, any favorite dishes that you uh, are going to prepare this year? Uh, traditionally, we always eat dumplings mm-hmm. because the dumplings shapes like um, golden ingots. That's why we eat it. We all wish next year we have more money. <laughs> <laughs> and this question is to both of you right now. It's just in general uh, in Metro Detroit. What is it uh, right now, especially uh, like being Asian American in Metro Detroit or in Detroit? What are some of the things that we should know or we don't know about the Asian American population here in, uh, in Metro Detroit? And let's start with Peggy. 
Yes, I think um, I appreciate the opportunity like today. We've been able to share to lots of Metro Detroiters. Like uh, we celebrate the new year based on the lunar calendar. And um, here, like uh, we also have our um, open house annually um, down in the Hannon Center. We're trying to use this opportunity to let people have a close look at the Chinese culture and history and traditions, and they might be able to, you know, have the tea tasting, you know, culture presentation, or even have a chance to see the, like a dragon and lion dance. So I think that's pretty important for people to know about each other. Zhao? Yeah, so beyond the family gathering, the Lunar New Year is also celebrated with um, larger community events. So uh, that's why ACA is hosting a Lunar New Year Fair at its Chinese Community Center in Madison Heights on March 2nd. This will be a great opportunity for anyone who would like to learn more about the tradition and enjoy an authentic Lunar New Year experience. Thank you. And just no. give us a follow on all social media at Detroit ACA and uh, you'll get all the information. Thank you so much for that. Uh, you can find more information about Lunar New Year celebrations in Detroit and the Metro Detroit area at henin.org. Org. Peggy Du is the executive director of the Association of Chinese Americans, and Tao Lu is the marketing and development associate for the organization. Thank you both so much for joining the Metro, talking about the Lunar New Year, and I hope you all have a great Lunar New Year. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy You're li- New Year. Happy New Year. You're listening to the Metro, our daily news and culture program, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations. Coming up, we'll hear a conversation that Tia had with writer, producer, director, and activist Curtis Chin about his story growing up Asian American in Detroit. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at the University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new Master of Science degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. Admission is open to qualified applicants with a bachelor's degree in any field. Course selection is flexible with no prerequisites, four required courses, and six electives. Learn more at business.udmercy.edu. right here on 1019 WDET. I am Tia Graham and I am here with Nick Austin. Curtis Chin is back in Detroit talking about his memoir, Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. Curtis Chin is a writer, producer, director, activist, and co-founder of Asian American Writers Workshop, a nonprofit dedicated to Asian American writers. The book is about growing up Asian American in the black and white city of Detroit and coming out in his working class immigrant community, as well as being a first generation college student at the University of Michigan. Tia sat down with Curtis Chin, where she asked him about his memoir and growing up in Detroit. Well, I think more generally, what do I want people to know about Detroit? Um, 
because I do travel around a lot. I've gone to over 600 places in 20 countries giving talks, you know, on my books and, and you know, films that I do. Uh, and there is a lot of misconceptions about Detroit. And particularly when I tell them, oh, I grew up in Detroit, yeah. it's always this look of concern or like, well, what? how did you get out? You yeah. know what I mean? Stuff like that. And so I wanted to really present Detroit in an honest way um, as a kid and how a kid would see that growing up um, and also show people that good things still come out of Detroit. Detroit is still a wonderful place. Um, you know, to, to raise your family. Yeah, there are challenges, but, you know, um, you know, for, for some people, things still work out. Yeah. 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 So I think about representation. Um, where do you think we are today, uh, especially for Asian Americans in terms of representation and just telling stories? Well, I think that our country is going through uh, a lot of ways, like a culture war, right? Yeah. I mean, um, you're talking about banning books. You're talking about, you know, shutting down diversity programs in colleges and, and companies. Um, and that is a direct result of uh, the gains that people have made, people of color have made in these different areas of representation. People don't necessarily like this new vision of America that is a little bit more diverse, a little bit more inclusive, and also confronting some of the um, past injustices and, um, you know, uh, darker parts of our history, you know. And and some people don't want to have that conversation. But uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this memoir was that we live in this very divided country right now, right? We have these little silos where people don't talk to each other. But I felt like Chinese restaurants, at least in my experience, we're one of those few places where you can meet people from different backgrounds, whether it's race, religion, sexual orientation. And I sort of want to take that opportunity to have these important conversations that our country's um, needing to go through. I don't want to shy away from them, but I do think that maybe there's a way we can talk about them in a more, um, in a way that sort of brings us together closer. And so the way I pitched it to my agents was uh, the book is about uh, come for the egg rolls, but stay for the talk on racism. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that. So once again, uh, talking about your memoir, um, uh, go through some of the themes. So we talked a little bit about some of the themes in the book, but go through some of the themes and some of the the, the, the important ideas that you highlight, other than, of course, talking about and getting into the nitty gritty of racism that a lot of us experience here. But what are some of the other themes that we can get through in the book? So the book covers a, a narrow part of my life, which is basically, um, it's, it's structured into three sections, uh, eight stories in middle school, eight in high school, and eight in college, because 888 is good luck to Chinese people. Uh, and so it really is that childhood time period, you know, that, that it's focused on, um, you know, uh, in terms of, of my identity, how I was grappling, you know, being a minority uh, in the city. Um, so that's that's uh, the gist. Yeah. I'm sorry, was there a follow-up part to it? No, 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 hmm. just the themes of the book. Oh, the and themes. What we, yeah. yeah, the themes of the book is, you know, that childhood growing up. Um, you know, obviously it deals with family. It deals with education because that's, you know, primarily when I went through the uh, public schools here in the state of Michigan. But uh, the bigger theme of the book uh, is actually encapsulated in the first sentence of the book. Um, if you don't mind, I'll uh, share with it. It's uh, The opening line of the book is, Welcome to Chung's. Is this for here to go? Armed with a smile and a red waiter's jacket with a perpetual plum sauce stain. That's how my dad greeted any new face who entered the lobby of our popular Chinese restaurant in Detroit. Interestingly, my great-great-grandpa Gong Li had faced the same question in the late 1800s as he stood cold and alone on a rickety dock in Guangzhou, China, trying to decide his future and that of his young, impoverished family, for here or to go. So that is the basic theme. It's like, you know, as a kid, I'm trying to figure out, do, you know, I take this popular phrase that you hear whenever you enter a Chinese restaurant and I bring a larger theme to it. It's like for me, 
do I stay in this really wonderful Chinese restaurant where I get all the free food I want, <laughs> or do I you know, go out and, and find myself in the world, and particularly being queer and wondering how that might fit in with this family dynamic. And then even when I went off to Ann Arbor, you know, having this guilt of knowing that my pa- family was still here in the corridor and you know, literally calling them every night just to make sure that they were safe, that they had a, uh, like, who was going to leave the, the restaurant first, right? This fear of, of leaving my family behind, right? And, and I think this is, these are very universal themes, right, that people go through of um, growing up and being yourself. And so that is the theme, um, you know, of the whole book is really just finding yourself. Which I love hearing that so much. As soon as you said it, it's one of the things I think a lot of us, especially when we're first generation going into school, uh, we think about leaving family behind. And if we're doing this, what, what does it look like for our family so many other things that go through our minds, but when we think about this, I often think about generational curses or generational whatever it may be. We're not saying that we're breaking any generational curses right now, but just doing something that may be a little bit fearful to our families and to ourselves. What type of... what? What would what would you tell a younger generation or someone else out there who's listening about just going to follow your own dream, your own heart, and just trying to figure out how to do that? Well, I, I was pretty lucky because um, you know we had six kids in my family, you know, and so uh, I think my my parents uh, realized that they could afford to lose one <laughs> <laughs> if I went off and did my own thing. Uh, so <laughs> I think I was that lucky kid. My parents were very supportive. They let me do whatever I want. They always encouraged me. And particularly like, you know, when we had people coming into the restaurant, my dad loved introducing me to like, we had a lot of reporters, yeah. you know, that would come in. But we also had, you know, people that worked on the assembly line. My parents didn't really discriminate in that way and say like, okay, well, we only want you to have white collar jobs, you know. But, you know, anytime they met somebody who liked their job, those are the people they introduced us to. You know what I mean? And so I think because of that, I had a really open um, canvas, you know, because of my parent. That was Tia Graham speaking with writer, producer, director, and activist Curtis Chin about his story growing up Asian American in Detroit. It's the Metro on 1019 WDET, where it's also Fat Tuesday, the annual day of indulgence for Catholics before Lent begins. For many in Metro Detroit, today is simply known as Punchki Day. The softball-sized fried dough treats popularity spread from the Polish immigrant community of Hamtramck in the last century to become a beloved tradition of Metro Detroiters from every background and faith. However, the popularity inadvertently created one of the most consistently mispronounced words in Detroiters' lexicon. Listeners and first-generation Pol- listener and first-generation Polish immigrant Tomas Perel gave WDET's Amanda LeClaire a quick lesson in proper Polish. Plural form is going to be so more than one, of course. It's going to be Ponczki. Think about it as like Al Capone. Take that Pone from his last name and a Czech. So it's going to be Ponczki, like um, I would say Czechkis. Actually, sorry, that Ponczek is really for the singular form, but plural it's Ponczki. Ponczki. Yep. And singular. And, yeah, and then for the singular form, you're basically taking that Pone and then check, like a check that you take to the to the bank. So Ponczek. Ponczek. Yeah, and that is a hundred percent how the Polish people say it. It's no. Punchki or Ponchki or however different forms that, you know, people attempt to say it, that is actually the correct way. Does it get to you when you hear people pronounce it wrong? Uh, to be honest, no, because, you know, I, uh, I come from, you know, uh, first generation being, you know, born here, not really, I didn't even speak the language, so 
probably first grade. So I know that how hard it is to learn a language. And, you know, for that one day in the year, people are trying to pronounce something different. So the fact that they're interested in our, you know, heritage and background and they are, you know, diehards for these, you know, desserts, I'm happy about it. I mean, it's kind of cool that across Metro Detroit, so specifically in this region, uh, today is not really known as Fat Tuesday. It's known as Punchki Day. Exactly. And to be honest, um, it's actually Fat Thursday in Poland. So for whatever reason here in the States, it became Fat Tuesday. It's still the day before, you know, Ash Wednesday, which is the important idea here. But, you know, it transpired to Fat Tuesday in the States, originally being Fat Thursday in Poland and in Europe. So and then the one other thing that I would add is, you know, you can get them at any local grocery store and you'll see, you know, from the more authentic ones to the original ones, um, the box is how it's spelled. That's just the last thing that I want to touch upon. If you see a box that reads P-A-C-Z-K-I without a tail at the bottom of the A, that translates to boxes, which is pronounced pachki. So if you see that, you're not buying a ponchek, you're buying boxes. The real way to spell it is going to be P-A with a little tail, C-Z-K-I, because what that tail on the A means is that that A is not an A, but an ON. And that's where ponczek and ponczki are pronounced. You know, when Polish uh, people here in the area are driving by the local stores and they see that, we all laugh at the joke because, you know, we say, oh, someone's moving. They're selling boxes instead of ponczki, you know. And that was Amanda LeClaire's chatting with first-generation Polish immigrant Tomasz Perel, explaining proper pronunciation of the Fat Tuesday, treat beloved by Detroiters and beyond. This is The Metro. As we mentioned a little bit earlier, Governor Whitmer is pushing lawmakers in Lansing to provide free community college for all high school graduates. But is it a good idea? To learn more, I spoke with economics professor Celeste Carruthers from the University of Tennessee, a state celebrated for its community college system. She broke down what a community college experience entails, especially when compared to a four-year university education. And I asked her to let us know, for people who aren't so familiar, how would she define community college? It's not accurate to say that community colleges educate every kind of student, and not just post-secondary students who have finished high school. A lot of high school students attend community colleges through dual enrollment programs and of working their way towards a certificate or even an associate's degree or getting kind of credits that they can apply towards their college education. Um, community colleges also kind of educate new high school graduates who are seeking some of those same credentials or kind of hoping to transfer to a kind of four-year college or university. And they also work a lot with what are often called non-traditional students, but actually make up, you know, a fairly large size chunk of the post-secondary student landscape who are either returning to school or going to college for the first time after, you know, maybe having been displaced from the labor market, having lost their job or just wanting to go in a different direction. Community colleges also have a number of like non-credit classes for kind of hobbyists who want to learn everything from kind of fly fishing to the arts and many other things. So they really do kind of educate every kind of student, college or otherwise. You know, I think if you think casually about it, some folks who have been a part of it that I've spoken to, some from the outside kind of think of these two-year degrees you can get at a community college as kind of being a way to transition maybe from high school to a four-year bachelor. In fact, from the numbers that I've seen, 
what, upwards of like 80% of people who start at community college do so with the prospect of going to a four-year degree, but not everybody does. You also mentioned this aspect of trying to get a job out of community college. So what do we know about that? Are community colleges an effective way for you to just get the two-year degree and get a job? Or how does that work in our current landscape? Well, we can study this in a few different ways. And what some folks have done, myself included, is kind of look at Census Bureau data um, surveying the American population every year or even every month. And we can kind of uh, ascertain how much people are working and how much they're earning with different levels of education. And so when you do that, you can kind of tease out maybe a 10 to 15 percent return on an associate's degree oftentimes from a community college. And so that compares like favorably to other financial investments. It's kind of less than the estimated return that you might get from a bachelor's degree or even a higher degree. Some researchers have dug into this in more detail to try to kind of tease out the causal effect of going to community college on kind of employment and earnings. You had mentioned Jack Mountjoy's paper in the American Economic Review. This is kind of what comes to mind when I think about this these days. And if he focused on Texas and found that enrolling in a community college rather than not going to college at all, he estimates that it has had a pretty large and significant effect on earnings by the time you were age 30. I want to say in like the 18, 20% range. But on the flip side, for students who kind of started a community college rather than going to a four-year school, maybe because the two-year school was a little bit closer to where they lived, it was more convenient, it's going to be a lower cost option. Some of those kind of returns to higher education were offset by kind of increased risk of not completing that bachelor's degree. And so that's consistent with research from a number of different contexts and over the years, finding that there is this lower likelihood of completing a BA and having that return on college investment if you start at a two-year school with intentions to ultimately complete a bachelor's degree. And so you had mentioned that you know, when surveyed, about 80% of new community college students will say that they aspire to have a bachelor's degree someday. That's where they would like their education to um, at least end up at some point. And a far lower share ultimately transfer and complete a bachelor's degree. And we don't know as much as we might like, or at least as not co- as concretely as we like about kind of what happens between when they're surveyed and they say they want to get a BA and you know years later when they're doing something else. Did their plans change? Did they find it difficult to navigate like transfer and all of these credit articulation agreements, which can be very complicated, or what happened in the intervening time? That's where we don't know as much. Yeah. And so it will take more research on that. But based on what I'm hearing, from you. It's this uh, idea that if you had a plan or were able to get into a four-year college, it would be better to just take that option. But for those who that might not have been on the table, community college would be a good use of your resources. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, certainly there are kind of, um, there's a significant payoff just, you know, speaking bluntly and thinking of college as a financial investment, it is, I acknowledge, like much, much more than that. But if we're like just looking at the finances that you get in the return that you get in the workplace, you know, going to college is a good investment, whether that's a community college or a four-year school. Tell me about what's happening in Tennessee. It's my understanding that you have a pretty robust program down there. What exactly happens in Tennessee and how does that work for your populace in terms of their return on investment, taxpayer investment for community college? So in 2014, 
2014, the Haslam administration proposed to make community college tuition-free for every new high school graduate in the state. This is called Tennessee Promise. It's, it's still going on and looks more or less the same as it did for the first class that was eligible for this in 2015. It also looked very similar to some nonprofit efforts that were happening in Tennessee in maybe 40-50% of the counties across the state before 2015 that was run by different organizations called like the Ayers Foundation Scholars and called Tennessee Achieves that had been operating kind of similar free tuition type of models where they ask students to volunteer in the community to file a FAFSA and see what other uh, financial aid they would be eligible for and you know then would kind of fill in the gap between any community college tuition and fees that was remaining after other scholarships were applied. So Tennessee Promise took this model statewide. Uh, it was very popular. When surveyed, people were very, very optimistic about this and they liked the idea of the certainty behind what community college would cost them in the state. And in the first year of the program, the percent of high school students going straight to college jumped up five or six percentage points, which was a degree larger than the state had seen in since they've been collecting data on college going among high school students. At the same time as this was going on, we were studying one of those earlier iterations of the program that was introduced in one county, Knox County, Tennessee, where I'm sitting right now and where the University of Tennessee, Knoxville is. And we found that the introduction of tuition-free community college through this last dollar model significantly increased the likelihood that eligible students went to college. And in follow-on research, we found that it significantly increased the likelihood that they completed an associate's degree without having precise positive or negative effects on the likelihood that they went on and got a bachelor's degree. And so you did mention that last dollar model. Uh, what specifically is that for us non-economists out there who want to understand yeah, how that factors yeah. in? Yeah, this bit of jargon is in contrast with a first dollar scholarship for free college. So if you imagine, you know, tuition and fees for a college being a certain amount, your grants and scholarships from other sources, so maybe your federal Pell Grant that you get if you have an income below a certain level, or your state merit-based scholarship if you have grades or an ACT, SAT score above a certain level. So these are going to account for a portion of those tuition and fees. And for many students, they actually account for the entire bill. So the maximum federal Pell Grant, both now and in 2015 when Tennessee Promise was introduced, would cover all of the tuition bill at any of the public community colleges in the state. But students didn't necessarily know that because you have to go through a fairly long and involved process to apply for financial aid and you know receive your financial aid determination and figure and, and do the subtraction there to see if I get this much in grant and the tuition bill is this much, here's what I have. I have left to pay. Here's what I'm left to be responsible for, in addition to living expenses and housing expenses and, and other uncertainties. So what a last dollar scholarship like Tennessee Promise will do is if a student uh, takes their tuition bill and subtracts their federal Pell Grant, their state scholarship, and there's anything left over, the state will cover that. So the state will cover the last dollar of community college tuition and required fees. A first dollar scholarship, which is how Kalamazoo Promise works in Michigan, grants students the amount of tuition from the first dollar. So it's just more like a straight transfer of the tuition bill to students. And then if they get any additional grants or scholarships, then they can put that towards those living expenses and supplies and books. Would you have any recommendations that you would give to Governor Whitmer or lawmakers in Lansing on how to best implement this now that you've done some research into it, you've seen how it's worked in other places? What recommendations would you have? And do you have any thoughts on the proposal as it exists right now in its infancy? Sure. 
Um, well, from what I've read of the proposal, I wonder, it's, it's kind of hard to determine this, but it looks as if it might be a first dollar type of proposal. If they're estimating that this is going to be kind of a $4,000 grant to students or it's going to save students $4,000 a year, that's roughly what um, Michigan's community colleges charge in tuition and fees right now. So it seems as if they're not thinking of structuring this as a last dollar program like what we have in Tennessee. So for taxpayers, um, a first dollar program is going to be much more costly. Um, that's one thing to kind of keep in consideration in Tennessee. The cost per student per year under Tennessee Promise has been less than $1,000 since the program was implemented. So $4,000 per student per year is going to cost the state quite a bit more. Something else to keep in mind is to kind of ensure that students who do want to ultimately go on and attain a bachelor's degree have some kind of certainty and some excellent guidance over how exactly to do that. So are the two-year schools and the four-year schools in Michigan, do they have clearly communicated, reliable credit articulation systems and transfer systems? We have a Tennessee transfer pathways here that have been around for a number of years, still not a perfect system. It still can be kind of difficult to navigate, but it offers a pathway for students who can do enough advanced planning at their first year community college level to get to that bachelor's degree that they ultimately want to attain. That's an important consideration because we did see in Tennessee that a first year student enrollment in four year universities dipped a little bit in the first year of Tennessee Promise. It started to climb in later years, but there did appear to have been kind of a substitution effect between four-year schools and two-year schools when you kind of elevated two-year community colleges and financial aid for those colleges. It made students uh, more likely to start there, which, as we mentioned, is a low-cost way to attain a bachelor's degree, but it also entails more work on the part of students to make sure that they navigate transfer to a four-year school at some point later. That was University of Tennessee at Knoxville Professor of Labor Economics Celeste Carruthers discussing her research on community college. This is the Metro 1019 WDET, your source for daily news, arts, and culture, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations. Coming up, we'll hear from the Metro Sam Corey about an African-American AP class being offered in St. Clair Shores. You all stay right there. This is the Metro on 101.9 WDET, your new show connecting you, Metro Detroit, through stories and conversations about the news, arts, and culture affecting the city and our region. I'm Nick Austin. And I am Tia Graham. Just getting to a quick weather check today, Tuesday. It's 34 degrees, flurries in the air. It's a high of 37 degrees. Be prepared for that. And tomorrow, Wednesday, Valentine's Day. It's going to be sunny but chilly. Most of the day will be a low to mid low to mid 20s so that's going to be a little chilly but your heart hopefully will be warm you're describing all of my relationships chilly frosty sunny but chilly oh you know what we're not going to get into that right now that's for tomorrow yeah it is (laughs) okay so in the past few years our political debates haven't just been about policy like health care and climate change instead a lot of tension has been about american history specifically whose history should get taught and whose shouldn't 
Since 2021, a number of states have prevented schools from teaching courses related to African-American history and culture. But in Michigan, it's been a slightly different story. This past fall, 20 schools in the state unveiled AP African-American Studies courses. Producer Sam Corey of the Metro spoke with James Satimo, a teacher at South Lake High School in St. Clair Shores. They spoke about why his students have been so excited to take AP African American Studies. Sam began by asking James why he thought it was important to teach the course. It gives me, I think, a way to connect a little bit more to my students. We have a high population at South Lake of African-American students. And what's really surprising about it is the amount of history that doesn't actually get taught in relation to the 225 years of slavery. Mm. And we spend a lot of time, you know, always in classes talking about, you know, here's the Civil War, here's slavery, this is what it looks like. But this class is really fun because it goes way back. The start date, you know, is back in the African Kingdom's B.C. time. So it now relates a lot of history that the students get in other classes, world history, U.S. history, and relates it to something more based on their own culture and their own ethnicity. And they're having fun with it. I think we've had some really great discussions, opened their eyes to a lot of things. So far, there's things like, oh, I now know why this is in my, you know, family does this, mm. you know, you know, why, why do we do these traditions in my household? Or, you know, it could be a grandma's birthday or something. Why do we do this or something like that? Our students are connecting a little bit more to their own ethnicity, culture, and history, and it's kind of fun. What has been the reaction from parents, but maybe other faculty, from either your school district or around it? You know, there's a lot of controversy around teaching African-American history, African-American culture. That's wrapped up in a lot of things, a lot of politics that's happening right now. A lot of it seems like just not wanting to appreciate and explore sort of the full reaches and breaths of American history. So one of the things I prefaced with the students as soon as we got in in September and I said, hey, welcome to AP African American Studies. This is going to be a class where we are going to delve into the topics. We are going to spend time on these topics a lot more than we would have in any other traditional U.S. history class. We are not going to mince words. I'm going to show you pictures that potentially um, might cause some emotional thought. And I said, be open, be honest with me. Let's have discussions. Um, We had a really great lesson a couple weeks ago where we were looking at all these pictures and they were drawings primarily of slave auction announcements. And kids just were fascinated by that this could actually happen. And I felt like it made the history of it come forward and made it real with them. And they actually could connect to it. So a lot of this class for me has been taking the material that's been given to me through the college board, but using my teaching skills to turn it into something that the students connect to. And if it invokes emotion, you're going to remember it. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a connection to it that's going to last a lot longer. And that's my goal is to connect my students to the material. I'm wondering what you make. We're in a period where a lot of people or a number of people, sizable, maybe minority, but but a, a number of folks regardless, look at, African-American history, African-American culture, African-American studies, courses like these, and they go, 
oh, this is a form of liberal indoctrination. This is a form of, I don't know, I guess, woke politics. This is a form of people who are teaching you how to hate America. What do you make of those sentiments? How do you understand them? So for me, you know, easily we can get into those topics or those using those words of indoctrination or woke politics or whatever like that. But what I like to say is if you stay true and you look at those primary sources and you read what somebody was writing in a poem or what somebody wrote in a song, or what somebody wrote in a narrative, and you read, and this is a firsthand account, and it's not edited by somebody, but you're looking at the original source, then how do you say they were wrong, or that didn't happen, right? Um, We can, you know, probably sit down and have a conversation about the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. We're not going to argue that that wasn't written, right? We may have a conversation, though, of what did they mean? We can always have that conversation when any Supreme Court case comes up and somebody's interpreting what they meant. We do have to make sure that we are being open to multiple interpretations, but not to dismiss it. Why do you think, from your perspective, there are schools, certainly in the South, but also in the North, in Michigan, that don't want to take up this history, that don't that don't want to teach this history or contemporaneous culture? Like, what what do you think is happening that make people go, you know, and I actually, I don't want it, and in fact, it, it offends me. Like, what do you, you think is happening there? Well, if you're talking about a conversation to say, why in the world is there even an AP African American Studies class that exists... Um, I think that is limiting the options students should have. Everybody should have the right. If they want to explore this and are willing to explore this, they should have the ability to explore it. So that would be my response to that. There's multiple areas of the country, multiple districts, things like that, that are going to come up with multiple reasons, and their reasons might not actually align with the truth sometimes. Mm. Um, But from my standpoint, one of the reasons I jumped on the class is I was like, yeah, absolutely. If you want to be able to take this class, I'm here to teach it for you. I'll do it for you. Mm. And I got a pretty good response. There's other colleagues in this that have classes where they got students on a waiting list to take this Mm. class throughout the country. James, thank you so much. I took a lot of your time and I really, really appreciate the conversation. That was Metro producer Sam Corey speaking with South Lake High School teacher James Septimo. You are listening to The Metro on 1019 WDET-FM. And coming up, we're going to chat about 75 years of WDET on the Detroit airwaves. You all stay right there. This is the Metro, your source for daily news, arts, and culture, bringing you the latest in Metro Detroit through stories and conversations right here on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin, joined by Tia Graham on a very special day because today is not only Fat Tuesday for you out there who enjoy your punchki. 
That's great. It's also the 75th anniversary of us going on air. And I don't mean Tia and I, although I'm sure we wear our age as well. I'm talking about WDET. That's right. Started broadcasting the over the airways located at 123000 Radio Place. Back then, 52,000 watts of power. And it was a very historic moment. It was ran by the UAW. And I'm looking at the program names, Tia. We had some quality programming there. Betty Hicks Sports Fairway, the Detroit Public Library Symphony, all the things that you needed in your life. We were broadcasting there. Ultimately, though, ended up getting sold. Uh, and that's a story that we'll get into a little bit later on. But as we're celebrating this 75th anniversary, one of the things that we're having is an event at Jam Handy that's sold out. Uh, but even though that's been sold out, we're still going to celebrate it with staff and listeners. We also want to celebrate the station we love right now with WDET's general manager, Mary Zatina, to let us know a little bit about her plans for the next 75 years of WDET. Mary, welcome to the Metro. Thank you, Nick. It's really wonderful to be here with you and Tia. I'm so proud of the show. I'm proud of the changes we made. We implemented a number of new programming changes really as our 75th anniversary gift back to the community. So I'm pretty pretty proud of that. Um, You talked a little bit about our history. We were founded by the United Auto Workers and today is the 75th anniversary of the first broadcast of WDET and the UAW held the license and it was originally a commercial license So a lot of people move to Detroit and they're looking on the dial for the public radio station and they look into the far left and they look to the far right and WDT is right in the middle. And we have um, that early FCC commercial license and the UAW to thank for a really nice position on the dial. Now I'm talking old school, right? Because everything's digital now. We used to call ourselves FM 102 But with digital, we are 101.9, right smack in the middle of the city, in the middle of the dial. Yeah, no, it's pretty cool. You know, it was with the UAW initially. I do love this story about how in 1952, uh, the UAW, suffering losses running the commercial station, just offers it up to Wayne State University to house it, sells it for $1 right nominal. It's basically just a gift of the station in 1952. But Walter Ruther, in his letter about the sale says that uh, we are confident that the use of these facilities by the university will advance the principles and the philosophy of the UAW, which are founded upon the belief that no group within a community can make progress except as the community moves ahead together. It's a great sentiment. And with that in (laughs) mind, what are your plans for us moving forward together for the next 75 years, Mary? Well, that is a great sentiment. And um, I think we have found as other media entities are shrinking, newsrooms are shrinking, WDET as the community's public radio station has the opportunity to grow and convene and move the community forward together. You know, we have some of our own plans and aspirations for the future. I'm going to mention a a few of them tonight to our our members who, who plan to come to this party. We need a new facility And um, we have our sights set on one. It will be beautiful. It will be much more prominent for folks who've ever tried to find WDET. It's it's quite the challenge. So um, we want to do more education of young people and level the playing field for um, minority and unheard voices 
in broadcasting. We think we can do a lot more training in a bigger and better facility and one that doesn't leak. Mm. And I also, you want to hear my big, hairy, audacious goal? Mm-hmm. I want to put our call letters on the tower. Mm-hmm. Now, people around here roll their eyes when they hear that, especially our operations manager wondering how much weight is that going to put on the tower and how are we going to do it? But um, it's a time for the station to shine for the next 75 years. And programmatically, I'm really delighted with the new enhancements we've made, adding 40% more local content. No one's doing that. We're hearing from our NPR colleagues all over the country, like, what, what, what do you got going on there? What's going on in Detroit? As more and more people are taking programs that are produced and curated from maybe a central spot like Washington or New York or L.A. We're doing it here in Detroit with Detroit experts, and I'm really proud of that. Well, so then that begs the question for some people. They like the national programming and NPR, and, you know, I can even hear it when people call in. You've probably heard from people who are disappointed that they've lost their favorite NPR program. So then I present to you, what response would you have to those who feel like they're losing something in this? Well, we did a survey last summer, and we asked, what are your favorite programs? And boy, oh boy, I tell you, we heard some that were our own, locally produced ones, and also some NPR programs that we dare not touch. And we didn't. So the Big Ten Posts, Morning Edition, All Things Considered, I had someone say, oh, please don't take away Marketplace. We didn't. Um, wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is beloved in our community, and it's um, on, the, on the dial and still where it was. Um, also, On Point is still here. So the things that aren't here, and I heard a few complaints, a few disappointments, can be found robustly in podcasts and online and, frankly, in some other stations that broadcast into our market. So we don't want to lose any listeners, but everything we took away is available somewhere else, and we're giving voice to a whole lot more of Detroit. All right. Well, happy 75th anniversary to you as well. General Manager Mary Zatina, thank you for joining us on the Metro. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Tia. That's going to do it for this edition of the program. However, before we get out of here, Ryan, Patrick Hooper, what's going to happen next on The Groove at noon? Well, we got so much great music. We're going to focus on this great musician, Eric the Architect. We've got Jeff Milo with us to preview my local tonight. 75 years strong. It's crazy to think that I've been here all 75 of those years, and I hope to make it another 75, guys. Yes, that would literally be certifiably insane to think that you've been here for 75 years. So perfect words there, as this is the Metro for Tuesday, February 13th. You can listen to the recent episode online, all of them, and make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. The Metro is produced by Sam Corey, David Lyons, and Jack Philbrandt, with reporting from Amanda LeClaire. Nate Bender is our technical director, and music is by Sam Bobian. Our news director is Jerome Vaughn, and program director is Adam Fox. The Metro is a WDET production, a listener-supported service of Wayne State University. And if you like what you hear and want to support the Metro, consider becoming a member at WDET.org slash donate. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit Public Radio, your connection to news, music, and conversation.
WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. More information at business.udmercy.edu.